you're enjoying Always Take Notes, please consider contributing to the podcaster's crowdfunder on Patreon. It allows us to pay our producer and social media editor and also to invest in better audio kit and generally to keep the whole podcast going. If you contribute to the crowdfunder, you can get a great set of rewards. Rachel, what are they? You will get a reef of successful magazine pictures from Simon, myself and some previous hosts of the show. Uh, for as little as $2 a month, and it would really help us keep the show going. So please consider it if you enjoy it and get any value from it. And um, we'd like to give a shout out to our latest Patreon, Kyle Brown, who's signed up this week. Many thanks, Kyle. And also thanks for your very touching email that you sent uh, about what you enjoy about the show and some of your uh, really useful thoughts and feedback. Kyle is a journalist who's worked in radio, television and print, but is looking to move more towards long form written journalism. Good luck with all your efforts, Kyle, and thank you for supporting the show. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke with the novelist Linda Grant. I spoke with Linda about her recent novel, A Stranger City, about writing about life in a tuberculosis sanatorium in the dark circle. And as ever, I asked her about the economics of her writing life. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. So Linda, great to have you uh, on Always Take Notes. Thanks so much for finding time. This is another episode that we're recording remotely, but hopefully um, due to some technical wizardry that our producer has recommended, we're going to have slightly clearer sound quality. Um, I wanted to start off by talking about A Stranger City, by your your novel that's, that's been doing so well. And I wanted to ask really about it in the context of firstly, a novel about London, and secondly, a novel about Brexit that only has the mention of the word Brexit once in it, if that's that's how I've seen it categorised. And were you conscious? I know you were working from this on working on this from twenty sixteen, but you know, from the beginning, was that what it was going to be, and how did it evolve as the politics and so forth developed live? Um, the fact that Brexit is only mentioned in it once is an accident. It shouldn't have been mentioned at all. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I didn't mean for it to be mentioned at all. I think I referred to, you know, the referendum, the vote, and then it's it crept in at the end at a fairly late stage, the, uh, the word. Um, I mean, it, it's a novel which had a lot of different geneses. Um, it didn't start from a single idea, and I started writing it in 2016, um, but I've been thinking about it earlier. I mean, it, it goes back actually earlier than that to 1990, um, when um, Channel 4 made a documentary about um, pauper's graves, people buried in pauper's graves. And there was a story about a woman whose body had been recovered from the Thames and was never identified. And I wrote a feature about this for the Times at, at the time. And they spent months, I mean, this is before the internet, obviously, they'd spent months looking for, you know, trying to f putting up posters all over the city. Um, and it, when I check back, you know, sort of, 15 years later she still hadn't been identified 16 years later she still she was never identified and it was seen is this this is a separate incident from dream of a life right yes completely mentioned... separate completely yeah. separate incident from dream of a life though dream of a life seemed to me was very very much this is a documentary about the woman who's a very popular, vibrant, you know, party girl uh, with a good... She was 30, 38, right? Like she yeah, was, with, a, yeah. with a very good job, worked in the city, who um, died probably of a heart attack in her flat and her body wasn't discovered for two or three years. 
And what interested me about it was people it, people just thought, oh, I thought she'd moved on. I thought we just lost touch. So it wasn't that, you know... So I was thinking a lot about what happens when people go missing in cities or people go missing and nobody is looking for them one way or the other. So that was one thing that happened. And then at that time, my nephew and his wife had just bought, were just in the process of buying at the time of the referendum, um, their first house. Okay which was about three doors away from a railway line. And there was a lot of discussion about did they really want to buy a house by a railway line and a lot of thinking about railway lines. And then the referendum happened. And about a week after the referendum, I I witnessed quite an ugly incident outside Waitrose in which a big issue seller who had been pushed off his pitch by a different big issue seller who was Albanian I think and he said you why are you still here you should have gone home now I mean this was somebody who you know was in a very poor state of both physical and mental health young living I think in a hostel and yet he knew that this big thing had happened and that the foreigners, the immigrants, the people who had deprived him of his livelihood had to go home now. And the security guard came out and the security guard said, you know, what's going on? And the security guard was from the Caribbean. He said, why are you still here? Why? So a whole lot, whole set of things were sort of coalescing in my mind about where the hell all this was going to. But I didn't want to write about the politics of Brexit. That that was of no interest, and I didn't want to argue. Want to write about the arguments about Brexit. What I wanted to write about was the idea of home. Where is our home? How do we, you know, how do we make a home? Um, where do we come from? What is our sense of belonging? And what happens when your sense of home, you know, suddenly is not what you thought it was? where you're being told this, is, this isn't your home. And London, which is a city I've lived in since 1984, um, so I come, I'm one of those people, one of those many, many Londoners who come from somewhere else. Because you're from Liverpool originally, right? I'm from Liverpool, mm. yeah, which is a sort of, you know, quite a strong sort of, you know, geographical identity. That's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the strangeness of cities, cities of strangers and places where people can feel dispossessed because where they grew up doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it doesn't exist in terms of the shops that they knew, the kinds of people who were their neighbours. So I wanted to try to encompass the whole, if not the whole city, but a, you know, a great swathe of the city with lots and lots of people trying to work out what their sense of home was, whether they were incomers to London or they were native-born Londoners who felt that the city wasn't theirs anymore. So that was what I was thinking about. And all those threads kind of came together um, in my mind um, over the course of the summer of 2016. And in terms of literary touchstones, I saw you you were referring to Dickens a number of yeah. times in interviews. It, why why so? Because of as a London writer, or because of his style, or the way his novels are structured? What well, I mean, you, you did an MA on Dickens, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. I did. I did an MA on Dickens, and 
I I think that there are probably two great novels of London, and they're both by Dickens, and they're Bleak House and Our Mutual Friend. Our Mutual Friend has sort of echoes of, uh, or of, <laughs> sorry, A Strange City has echoes of Our Mutual Friend, because both are concerned initially with bodies being recovered from the river, yeah. uh, drowned bodies in the river. Bleak House begins with one of the greatest descriptions ever of London, um, of mud and fog, and the mud and the fog travel up river and they encompass absolutely everything. I've been very influenced by them for a long, long time. And the thing about Dickens was he wrote about cities where lives intersect. He wrote, he wrote about all sections of London society from the courts of chancery, the court of circumlocution, as he called it, the judges in their in their wigs and their bar- and, and and their chambers, to down to crossing sleepers and everything in between, is encompassed in a Dickens novel. And what one of the greatest scenes in literature is a dinner party near the beginning of Our Mutual Friend. And it's a dinner party at home of a nouveau riche, Johnny-come-lately couple called the Veneerings. And all the guests at the table are described through their reflections in a mirror. Mm -hmm. So I think Dickens was... The thing about Dickens was he walked an enormous amount. He went on these sort of 40-mile walks when he got fed up with his company at dinner. And he would walk around London at night and he saw the whole of London. I'd always had a lot of difficulty writing about London because it's so big. How do you encompass the whole thing? Yeah. And so I felt that I could only do it through... If you want to write about the city, which is what I wanted to do, and I'd written about cities before... I mean, I've written a number of novels which are set in which cities are as much the characters as anything else. Um, the only way you could do it was, in a sense, in a fragmentary way where you were describing a lot of different lives. Were you concerned to writing something that was so tied to recent historical events at the, the risk that it would date, you know, that this would... So you, you yeah. were putting, putting a timestamp on it. Totally. I mean, that was conscious. All the time I was writing it, I was writing in real time. Yeah. And in the end, what I decided to do was to go ahead of myself because I thought, supposing Brexit doesn't even happen, you know, mm. all kinds of things could happen. The one thing, of course, I didn't expect to happen was... <laughs> a pandemic <laughs> that that would have just been like jump jumping the shark if that, had that, been. that a pandemic would have been jumping the shark you're absolutely right and so i was always thinking you know wh- where is this going if you're writing in real time you're kind of hostage to fortune the whole time mm. and I, I it was published last year last june i think uh, last may and i mean in a way you know, Brexit seems to have been almost forgotten. You know, it's this sort of, it, it's a kind of dark pool, you know, beneath the surface of all our lives, which we're rushing towards, but nobody talks about it anymore. Nobody thinks about it. It's going to happen. Of course, it's going to happen. Um, but it's going to be so mixed up with uh, with the pandemic, with coronavirus, that, you know, we'll forget what its impact is. So in a certain way... I think that the Brexit books, the Brexit novels, which seem so contemporary at the time, have suddenly become 
inadvertently very dated <laughs> and I can only hope that you know in a couple of years time with good news received today about uh, the Oxford vaccine that we'll able to be look back on the pandemic as an extraordinary sort of you know blip in our lives but Brexit will still be with us but that I think is why I didn't want to talk about Brexit I wanted to talk about the themes of where you, you feel your home is where you're, you're a sense of alienation and of the way the city can throw up shocks and surprises. Would would you have a shot at the pandemic? Is that something that's kind of uh, do, it's like dragging at you to? to... Um, I think every novelist who writes about the contemporary is thinking, "Shall I have a shot at the pandemic?" Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's an interesting observation that if you look at the writers who started publishing in the twenties, Virginia Woolf, James Joyce. They were not writing about the flu epidemic, which is very interesting. It has almost no impact, doesn't it? Because isn't it? Who is it? Um, Dos Passos was like on a sh- on a troop ship across the Atlantic, full of people dying of flu, and it merits one line in his diary. And there's nothing, yeah, it, nothing in USA about it. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing. I don't think there's anything in British. I mean, there may be kind of re- re- glancing references to it, but when you consider that it killed sixty million people. And there's a wonderful, um, not recent novel called A Time of This Time of Dying, um, which I read several years ago. I judged a, a prize, uh, which it won, um, the Encore Prize, and uh, the Society of Authors. And so I knew about the absolute horrors of the pandemic. I knew about it, but on the other hand, it it has left no footprint, and. I wonder why, I wondered, you know, I wondered if there's a reason for that and if what we really want to do is to get back to that sort of pre-COVID world or if there is just going to be so many COVID novels, so many um, plague novels that people will be not want to read them. I don't know. You know, do you just ignore it or do you have it centre focus? I, I don't know the answer to that. It's interesting. I mean, the other perennial question we always put to novelists we have on the show is whether is how they construct their books. So, mm-hmm. and that the, the terminology that we often hear here is, is I don't know if you've heard these, but of being a plotter versus a plunger. So, you know, whether you're someone <laughs> who who works out the narrative structure of your novel entirely beforehand, whether it's on post-it notes or you know a big board on your wall, or if you you just dive in and follow. And I was interested, what's your approach here? And again, when you're when you're hewing pretty close to the present, how how does that have an impact on how you're building? your book <laughs> it's a great question um many years ago i met jan martel um and he told me that he doesn't start to write until he has detailed notes for each chapter and i am the exact opposite i haven't a clue what i'm going to write about until i start writing i don't even know what the book's about i have some ideas in my mind and I test them out and see, does this work? Is there a story here? And very often a novel that I write changes direction, changes tack, turns out to be not about who I thought it was going to be or what the story was going to be. So I'm trying to tell a story and it would bore me to tears if I knew what the story was. I wouldn't want to write about write it. I start writing to find out what happens. Here's a situation, here's a character, now what happens? Who is this person? So I started 
writing Stranger City with the description of the funeral of the woman whose body has been found in the river and unclaimed. And I didn't know anything else. I didn't know who she was. I didn't know who any of the other characters were. I hadn't a clue. I just had a situation. And that is how I write. It's always how I've written. Um, I I mean, I certainly take notes in, in, in the sense of, you know, I would jot down, I think at some point this character could do this or this might happen. But they're just one-line notes. I mean, they're, they're one-liners, two-liners. They're not detailed notes at all. I was reading that description of the funeral, which is on your, on your website, and I was wondering, because you, you'd attended a similar funeral, right, as a mm. journalist. So was that, yeah. was that kind of experience your, your source that you were working up? And how, how closely, I mean, you mo- kind of moved it, temporarily where, where it sets in time but yeah but how did you know in terms of riffing off a, a life experience that you're you're building a piece of fiction about how do you go about doing that well I mean I I went back and looked at the original piece of journalism that I'd written I mean there wasn't that much of it because it was a bigger it was only part of a larger story about pauper's graves so there were, uh, there were other people as well um, but the detail which kind of sprung out at me was that the as she was being buried, there was nobody there apart from the pallbearers from uh from the uh the, the undertakers and me and a Times photographer and the camera crew from Channel Four. So if there hadn't been press there, there would have just been these two people from the Undertakers. Mm. And they were having a conversation about classic cars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, String backed gloves and everything like that. Yeah. That's right. I mean I elaborated on that and you know, in in this you know, this opening chapter he's he's looking up eBay entries on his phone, which obviously would not have happened in uh, 1990 but I, I I went back and you know I, I like if I can to get the sort of you know the the details right I prefer it if the details you know do a bit of fact checking so I just went back and read it but all most of the characters that attend the funeral the arrival of the priestman the arrival of the documentary maker are from my imagination. They were new characters which came to life as I wrote it. I mean, the the other chapter which follows it, which comes from life, is the observation of a couple arguing on a train. And that was a real argument that I really saw on a train. Um, from Moorgate, you were saying? I think I yes, heard, yeah. to Moorgate. Oh, okay, right. um, the line from Hatfield to Moorgate in which a a pair, a, a, not a couple, not partners, I don't think, um, but a couple of young people in their 20s, I suppose mid to late 20s, were travelling back from some sort of open-air festival in a park, and then he said something to her so insulting, and I just saw her face crash, absolutely crash. And when I got home, I was really kind of haunted by it. And again, I knew nothing further. I knew absolutely nothing more. Um, but at the time, I was interested in missing people um, and doing it, you know, talking to people about, you know, when you see these missing people alerts on Twitter and who these people are. And I talked to some policemen about missing people and got some ideas about how these missing people tweets are not 
quite what you think they are. And often they're children who've run away from care Mm. and have run away over and over and over again. And then there are, you know, wives who've gone missing, wives, girlfriends, women who've gone missing and have gone missing for a good reason. So the police do not necessarily want them to be brought back home Mm. if they're escaping from abusive relationships. And then there are these mysteries, you know, they're, yeah, you know, he's safe and sound now, he's home, but you never find out what went on. So, um, so that was another thing which, which, you know, I did, I, I only do research when I've got something that I want to find out about. I don't do anything in advance. Yeah, that, that's come up with a lot of interviews, actually. I think we had, we had Ian Rankin who said that when he was starting mm. out, he would do research in advance and end up wasting loads of time because he would, you know, you would you would find something that would en- end up on the cutting room floor. And so now he'll do a draft and then say that there's a specific detail. I think he mentioned a, a blood test or something that you have to check. He will then go back and and do that. Um, but he, yeah, he 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 suggested that research should come certainly not at the beginning of the process, as it were. I I read that and I completely agree with him. I mean, he's quite right. One of the kind of catch-22s about writing in modern times is um, you're connected, should you be connected to the internet or not? And preferably you wouldn't be connected to the internet. But if you are, you can very quickly look something up. You can Google something. What year did this happen? that kind of thing. So you you're not you're not having to waste time by going back and, you know, sort of um getting rid of a load of stuff because you did you know, you didn't look it up when you needed to look it up. So I do look things up a lot, check spellings of things. Um but um in terms of doing any advanced research, my experience has been that like Ian, it just winds up on the floor. I mean I have a massive file. Um <laughs> people are always asking about, you know, writers' techniques and a lot of us have a file for each book which has got different kind of titles. Mine is called Over. And it just consists of pages and pages and pages of bits that have been cut from the main document and pasted in, in case I want them later. (laughs) Um, And frequently I'll come back to them and go, yeah, that didn't work there, but it worked somewhere else. So... And that's where any research would go. But I've I've wasted too much time with research. I mean, it makes you feel a bit proper and it gives you an opportunity to leave the house. You think, oh, I'm a proper person now. I'm doing research. One detail is interesting is why HMS Belfast as the, the thing that she sort of got tangled in? Because um, when I, I probably did no more than two or three interviews two, I think it was actually, two with policemen, one about missing persons and one about with somebody who'd been um, with the retired member of the River River Police. And he had been somebody who had been on the water fishing out the bodies of, of people who committed suicide. And one of the things that he said, I, I said, why don't the bodies just you know, float downstream and into the North Sea. And he said very often they get tangled up in the chains of of HMS Belfast. And I thought, oh, my God, what an image. That's a gift. That's an absolute gift. That's a gift. Um, So, yeah, I think think those were... I mean, I, I, you know, I asked people 
sort of odd questions here and there. Um, the character Marco, who's you know who's in PR. I I I spoke to my nephew about hipster PR people, and he was able to answer some questions for me. <laughs> Can we fold back a bit now to to your own background and kind of your your intro into writing? So you you were you grew up in Liverpool. You did a you did a literary degree, a master's, and then you were a journalist before being a novelist. Is that that's right? Yes, I I, I mean I I left it very late, and I didn't become a novelist until I was in my early forties. And I think there's a sort of number of reasons for it. Um, I was always writing, and I was kind of winning, you know, teenage literary co- competitions. Um, so I always thought of myself as a writer, but I I didn't sort of. Uh, there were no, I mean, there may, I don't know if there were any creative writing courses back then. They, they, there may have been, but I certainly, you know, didn't hear of them until a long time later. I think one of the things, one of the reasons was that I wrote an enormous amount. I was always reading. So I was an only child till I was eight. And I read the most enormous amount. I was reading all the time. And, you know, there's this sort of thing about, you know, I'm looking for books which are relevant to my personal experience. Well, if you're growing up in a kind of Jewish immigrant household in Liverpool, there really were not any children's books which were relevant to my personal experience. There was absolutely nothing, and I'm sure there is still nothing. So I was, you know, having to read books about people sculling on Lake Windermere without understanding any of the vocabulary. Was that Arthur Ransom? Yes, Arthur Ransom, yeah. And Enid Blyton, Coves in Cornwall, no starfish, not a clue. And I think that because I was reading English literature and then American literature, I found it really quite hard to find a voice for myself um, because American literature is about the immigrant experience. I mean, Philip Roth said that Jews like the Irish and the Catholics made their contribution to the to the construction of the national identity, which didn't happen in the in Britain. Mm. I mean, I think it it has started to in the last ten years, but certainly not when I was growing up. So what happened was I felt that there was a sort of an English novel um, which I admired enormously and still revere, but. I I didn't know how to write such a novel. Um, I didn't understand how you wrote about class, for example. I it, it wasn't you know I I felt sort of too much of an outsider, but I didn't feel an outsider in the sense of having an identity anyone could easily understand. So everything seemed kind of second second hand. I I was writing almost you know, as an act of ventriloquism. And I gave up for a long time. And and journalism suited me very well because it allowed me to inveigle my way into the homes of complete strangers and ask them quite detailed personal questions, which suited me down to the ground because I was very curious. Were you working Um, on staff or were you a freelancer? No, I never worked on staff. I never worked on staff. I was always um, a freelance feature writer I worked for women's magazines and then The Observer, The Independent on Sunday, The Guardian. Um, Those were the ones that I was mostly writing for. And I never wanted to be, although I was briefly a columnist, I didn't want to have opinions. I was interested in other people. And the thing that 
being a journalist allowed me to do was when I was when I went to interview people, I would sit and watch them. I would have the tape recorder running, but I would be watching them and I would be seeing their body language and I would see the expression on their faces. And when I came home and I transcribed the tape, I would listen to the construction of their sentences, which was a kind of fantastic way of learning how to do dialogue. You know, how do people talk? Because how people talk isn't how, you know, journalism writes, if you see what I mean. So if you're transcribing speech, then that was a fantastic way of getting into the human mind and human feelings. And that, I think, was, you know, was one of my greatest advantages because you had to kind of, you met people and had to try to sum them up or get to the heart of them quite quickly and discover the appearances were very, very often deceptive. So I remember going to interview a woman who lived in this very cheechy house in Barnes in South London this was in the early 90s, and she was the type of woman who wore the navy blue cardigan and the pie crust collar, um, white blouse and the pearls, the string of pearls. And there was the Sunday Times colour supplements were sort of fanned out on the table. And then she starts, she told me the most horrific story. I'm, ju- I'm just looking up to find out what a pie crust blouse <laughs> is. But now I now now I see. You see okay. what a pie crust blouse is. Yes, wow, it sort yeah, of stands well. up. It's very prissy. Yeah. It's very sort of, it's very Fulham. Um, and she told me this horrific story about how um, her father, who was a surgeon, had performed an abortion on her. Uh, when it was still illegal, on the kitchen table of his bachelor flat where he kept his mistress. And I was just, my mouth was open. My mouth was just ajar at listening to this this extraordinary story of, of, you know, real kind of physical and mental abuse, you know, in this very genteel setting. And so it was experiences like that that led me into being very, very interested in in other people's lives and the stories that they had to tell. And that, I think, is, you know, allowed me to be a novelist. But on the other hand, I think it was when I stopped pretending to be an English person, a sort of middle-class English person, even though, you know, I had the sort of the, you know, the kind of independent girls' school um, education when I stopped being that and started to admit you know I come from a family whose first language wasn't English and how did the, me- know, the mechanics of it of actually getting your first book deal and stuff like that how did that work out <laughs> um I had lunch with a friend who was going through a very vexatious divorce and the purpose of the lunch was for her to talk about the many iniquities of her soon-to-be ex-husband and my role was to say oh no that's just terrible and one of his many crimes was he'd had a book deal for book contract for several years to write a biography and he hadn't done it. And she said, well, the thing about X, the thing that X doesn't understand about writing books is you just get have to get on with it. 
it was a sort of revelatory moment, really, because I thought you had to wait for the muse to descend upon you. The muse would come to you and then you would know what you were going to write about. So I went home and turned on my computer. This was about 1993, I think. And I had a piece of journalism which had been um, rejected by the Independent on Sunday. I, I'd been to Vietnam for the Observer magazine and I had this this bit of this story uh, about the arts in Vietnam and it began with a description of a street scene in Saigon with all these motor car, mo motorbikes sort of revving around. And it was rejected for being, I quote, too vivid. <laughs> so um, I put a character in the middle of that scene and I didn't know who she was. I had not a clue who she was. I didn't know what her name was. I didn't know anything about her. And I wrote about 5,000 words and I had an agent. Um, I had an agent because I'd written a nonfiction book and I sent it to him and said, I don't know what you think of this. And he said, well, I think it's very good. Write another 10,000 words and get back to me. So I wrote another 10,000 words and sent it off to him. And he came back and said, see if you can fix the following problems. So he gave me a list of things that were wrong with it. But he didn't tell me what to do about them. He just said, see if you can fix them. Things things there was just too much happening, that that kind of thing. Yeah. Things that weren't credible. So I wrote another 10,000. I wrote, I, I spent about three months working on that, that 10,000 words, sent it back. And he said, okay, now write another 5,000 words. So I wrote another 5,000 words. We had 20,000 words. And he said, I'm going to send it to Picador. And he sent it to Picador on the Monday. And on the Friday, I had a deal. It was extraordinary. I, I mean, I, I don't know if things like this happen anymore. Um, they probably don't. But it was a combination of a very, very good agent who understood how to get me to write something that was he was going to sell, he was going to be able to sell, and trusted me not to require me to tell him what he was going to be about. That was a really big deal that, he, you know, he said, oh, it doesn't matter what it's about, you don't, you know, we can write anything on the synopsis and he knew who to sell it to as well so i was i was very lucky it was that and also just this moment in which waiting stopped the the like the thing about writing how do you write you write and i i, I think that one of the things which is is so little understood is most writers do draft after draft after draft after draft and you look at your first draft and you think oh my god no, no I should not drop dead so anybody should come into my computer and see this this is just dreadful and you you know you get it to a point where you think okay there's something here there's something that's working there's something that I can make better there's something that I can live with and, and I think that's quite an important thing can I live with this for you know the two years that it takes to write it am I interested enough in these characters so I I, I think every time I, I sit I sit down it's like sort of casting off into the unknown I've no idea what I'm doing I get 
kind of suicidal. I think I've lost it. I'll never write another novel. And then some months later, you think, oh, okay, yeah, I was right to stick with this. But you can't, you, you can only make it better. That's all that you're trying to set out to do, trying to do achieving the end is, can I make this any better? One of the rules we have on the podcast is we always ask about money and how it interfaces with people's writing lives. So how how is that word for you? Are you full-time now as a novelist? or Yes, I, I am, yeah. I was very lucky in the what happened to me is the thing that changes writers' lives, which is winning a prize. And this was the Women's Prize, right? The Women's um, Prize. It was yeah. the Women's Prize in 2000. And it wasn't just the 30, winning £30,000. I mean, that was great. That allowed me to take time off. But it meant bigger advances, bigger foreign sales. And then being shortlisted for the Booker in 2008, same thing. Every time, you know, people ask... What's, you know, what? how does it feel like? What's the significance of winning a prize? And you, you just don't dare say the truth, which is money. And it's not money to spend. It's money to allow you to keep on writing. Um, so that was the thing which did it for me and allowed me to carry on and and do things like pay off the mortgage because once you paid off the mortgage you can live at you know a much lower level and I've also had a very loyal and fantastic publisher in Lenny Goodings at Virago who I've been with for nearly 20 years now um, who has stuck with me through thick and thin um, so I haven't chopped and changed publishers in the last 20 years. You've written both novels that are set in the present and in the past. How do you find navigating that? I was particularly interested in, in Dark Circle, where you're looking at uh, kind of sanatoria and TB. and all. Yeah. I, I haven't read it, but is the premise with that that this is like the last days of a sanatorium before antibiotics arrive? Yes, that's that, that's right. Um, when I was writing it, people say, what are you writing? And I was saying, oh, um, a TB clinic in 1949. And people went, oh... <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> but that was shortlisted for the women's prize so there you are uh it seemed to find its audience um i i had been thinking about something which happened when i was a child which is in 1957 um the government sent these mobile x-ray vans all around britain to do mass x-raying because they had the they had the cure for tb and they just needed to get everybody exit. It was kind of track and trace, basically. Yeah. It was a kind of 1950, much more successful and much more successfully organised. It was a track and trace. So anybody who had positive symptoms of TB, they could now treat. And that was really helpful. So that was what I was originally thinking of. And then um, a very elderly woman, a, a, a neighbour, um, sent me something she had been writing about her own working life and she mentioned that she'd been in a TB sanatorium in 1949, 1950. That's interesting, you know, can I come and talk to you about it? And we sat at her kitchen table and she, what she explained to me was at the age of 20, 19 or 20, she got a scholarship to university but she had to have a routine medical which involved an x-ray and she was diagnosed with TB and streptomycin, which was the cure for it, had been discovered, but the government didn't have any yet, or only had a tiny, tiny amount. They experimented on George Orwell. 
it was one year after the creation of the NHS. So what happened was instead of sanatoria being, you know, these magic mountain retreats for sort of, you know, frail aesthetes, suddenly people of all social classes were pushed together in these now nationalised sanatoria. And they were all waiting to see if they could live long enough to get the cure. And I remember sitting at the table and thinking, well, that's a story. Yeah, yeah. That's a story. That There's so much that I could do with that. Um, and it was very odd that, you know, I, I felt really as if I was writing it in my own little bubble of interest. But when I did literary festivals... And I learned very quickly before we started to ask people to raise their hands if they had a relative who had TB or indeed had had TB themselves. And there always a forest of hands. Really? It was so interesting. I mean, it was, you know, it was this chronic condition which lasted for, you know, centuries and affected every family. Um, and again, you know, it's a sort of forgotten illness now because, I mean, it still exists, but um, but it's treatable. You know, it, it's the sort of uh, as if coronavirus were going on for, you know, hundreds of years and, yeah. you know, were not, were, but, but not killing you quickly, but killing you chronically. And how much of a, an explicitly Jewish writer do you feel with your work now? I mean, you mentioned the other way, that, you know, that Roth, that comic from Roth, that it's more within the American mainstream. I just read um, The Plot Against America, which, oh, uh, which yes. is fantastic, you know. Um, yes, which I'm is just both watching sort of, the TV. Yeah, I've read the, I've read the book twice and I'm now watching the TV. Which is a kind of both a sort of state of the nation, but also a state of, you know, Jewish America yeah. book. And do you, do you feel that there is... Uh, is not a a similar Jewish. I think one thinks of Howard Jacobson or someone like that. I suppose, but do you think that that that, that tradition is absent in Britain? Yes, I think it is. I mean, of course, there are Jewish writers as Arnold Wesker, Pinter, who who is you know is a Jewish writer, but isn't writing explicitly about Jews, although he does in you know in the Homecoming, Goldberg, and I I think I mean there have always been Jewish writers. Anita Bruckner is, I think, a very Jewish writer, although she's always thought of as as a very English writer, you know, a writer of the sort of, you know, the English sort of febrile middle classes. But I, I think English Jews have always tried to, and this is a word which I didn't know until I read um, Philip Roth, tried to pass. So there's a, a lot more Anglicisation of names, there was a lot more sort of keeping your head down because really until the Windrush generation, the only mass immigration there was was Huguenot, Jewish and um, and Irish. And the Jewish population of Britain is only about 250,000. I mean, it's, it's absolutely tiny. And Jews have made their mark on, you know, every aspect of British society, but have never really sort of created a, a strong cultural identity, which I think is actually changing for the next generation, oddly enough. I mean, I know Howard very well, and the novels that Howard write, Howard writes are not novels that I can write because they're male novels. I mean, they're novels about men and men in their relationship to women. But I read Bernadine Evaristo's uh, Girl, Woman, Other hmm. uh, last year. And, you know, I love, what I love about it, amongst many other things, is just its absolute brashness 
about being about black lives in this country. The the first novel which really made the impact was Andrea Levy's Small Island. Um, I think that was a very, very important novel, but I think there's nothing like Bernadine's novel for saying, look, this is what it's like. This is a panoply of, of, of black British experience. And I, I think it's remarkable, a remarkable novel. You know, I, I don't sound like Keir Starmer and say Black Lives Matter is just a moment. It's not just a moment, but it is a huge moment which is transforming everything. And I think that happened in the American Jewish novel in the 50s, but never happened here. We're coming up towards the end of our time, but the final thing I really want to ask you about was your non-fiction writing. So you've written you've written about clothing, about Israel. Where does where does that fit it in? Both in terms of you know why why you wanted to do those books, um, but and how well, how you found that that experience. Well, I I think that I those two books that you I mean I I've written three or four four actually. I mean I wrote a, a non-fiction book about my mother. Remind me who I am again, mm-hmm. which is a family memoir. The non-fiction books I've written have been almost a kind of palate cleanser (laughs) when I haven't got a novel to write. When I I just think I'm too tired, I'm too exhausted, I haven't got anything I want to write about, I'll write some non-fiction. It sounds a bit dismissive of my own work, but it's probably true. And and what has been your process and things with with non-fiction writing compared Um, to...? Pretty much the same. (laughs) Uh, Pretty much the same. I mean, I still don't go out and do loads of research. I had thought in the past of writing a biography but the research would kill me. I mean, it would absolutely kill me. And I know biographers who are just, you know, who never give up, who are terrier-like in their enthusiasm for finding yet another document that has been lost in the archive of the British Library. And it's not really me. Um, I, I mean, I do prefer to kind of wander around inside my own head, you know, and look things up on my on the internet. But... Um, I, I think the sort of the burden of, of research would be too much for me to do. I don't expect to do any more non-fiction books. Sure. And what, what's your experience with social media as well? You're quite active on Twitter. Do you find that yeah. you talk about the hive mind of Twitter? Twitter can be incredibly helpful. I mean, I've had I've asked little tiny research questions on Twitter, um, which have been and I've got you know, been really, really helpful in getting replies. It's really, really good for that. I was asked to join Twitter by my publisher 10 years ago, and I went, oh, God, no, you know, no, I don't want to. I I found it very useful for sort of local information. But I think what has happened in the past four or five years is Twitter has simply become a kind of a list of things that I'm being exhorted to be angry about, and if I'm not seen to be angry about it, then that is a betrayal of some kind. So you don't care. You haven't tweeted about X. And at the moment, you know, I look at Twitter and it's just terrible things are happening in the world. And I can't write if that's what I'm thinking about the whole time. That seems a, a good moment to, to wrap this up to a close. So look, Linda, thanks for being such a, a great guest on Always Take Notes and wishing you all the best with A Stranger City and with your, uh, your other projects. Thank you very much. Hello, it's us again. 
I couldn't make this interview, but Simon, what did you think of it? I really enjoyed talking to Linda. It was another interview that we did remotely during the lockdown period. So apologies for any audio hiccups with that. We've had, I think, a really interesting streak of novelists on the show. So Amanda Craig, Louise Doughty, um, Linda Grant as well. And interesting just to sort of talk about her, her process and really to talk about people who are, you know, it's not their first novel. They've been out this game for a while. They're pretty experienced. And just to kind of ask and, and compare about their their tactics and their approaches and their, their strategies. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed speaking to her. And um, I think there was a lot to a lot of the people to take away from it. It's a great interview. And what else have you been working on, Simon? I've been prepping for this trip, uh, which I'm, I'm going on tomorrow. Uh, this is a follow up to the big COVID story that I did for The Economist's 1843 earlier in the year. So I spent three months profiling doctors, nurses, paramedics involved in the COVID response. And I'm going up to uh, north, to the Calderdale, to talk to contact tracers. So looking forward to doing that, but just um, balancing the kind of logistics of organising that with, with various other things. So fairly, fairly busy. What about you, Rachel? What have you been up to? Oh, I'm on annual leave at the minute, but I have recently accepted a place at the National Film and Television School for a diploma in script development, which will be part time. Um, I think it's 16 months. So that will be very exciting. And I'm really looking forward to getting started with that. That's very cool. And hopefully we should be getting some more uh, script writers on the show. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer, we've got a a change of producer here, actually, in that uh, Nicola Keane, who has been a great uh, addition to the show for a long time, has got a new job and so is stepping back. But Katie Lee, who is our social media editor, is stepping up to double hat as producer. So very many thanks to Katie for that. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And Katie Lee also does the social media. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can find us at Always Take Notes. Many thanks. Goodbye. <laughs>